Shoreshine Podcast, shining a light to the nations. Well, shalom, everybody. This is Bill Cloud once again, and thank you for joining us on Returning to Our Roots. Today, we're going to begin a series that we're calling The Mark of Cain. Now, when everyone goes and studies prophecy, as we've shared with you in times past, typically they'll go to the book of Revelation. And some of the things that we see in the book of Revelation involving the beast centers around the mark of the beast. There's this mark that people are given. And without that, that mark, they're not going to be able to buy or to sell. If you've kept up with our programs, you know by now that if you want to understand what's going on in the end, then you've got to understand what happened in the beginning. And where the mark of the beast is concerned, I believe it's paralleled by what we see given to Cain, the mark that God placed upon him. And so, again, what we're going to be looking at is the beginning so that we can understand the end, understand the days of the coming of the Messiah, who, by the way, said that in the days preceding his coming, that those days would be characterized by the same kind of things that we saw in the days of Noah. In fact, let's read in Matthew chapter 24 what he had to say about this. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And we've been talking for quite some time about the fact that the days of Noah were when men were mixing and mingling. That's really what characterizes the days of Noah. And by that we mean mixing ideologies, philosophies, um, taking what was true and mixing it with what was false, with good and evil being mixed together. And today, in the end of days, at least I believe we're living in the end of days, it's no different. We see men doing these same things. They ingest philosophies. They mix them together. The whole idea of tolerance and coexistence speaks to this. The drinking, not necessarily referring to literally drinking, but ingesting things that are abominable. In Revelation chapter 17, the woman who rides the beast has a cup that is full of all these abominable things. Well, in this day and time, people are ingesting those abominable things, calling good evil and evil good. In the days of Noah, men were marrying and giving in marriage, meaning, as far as I'm concerned, yoking themselves to what was unclean, what was profane. The sons of God in Genesis 6 were going and marrying the, we believe, corrupt daughters of men. Well, in this day and time, we have people who call themselves believers who are going out and locking arms with things that the, the, the Creator says are abominable, that he is against. And we've got people who call themselves believers who are yoking themselves to these kinds of things. So the point is in all of this, that what was going on in the beginning, in some form or fashion, is also going on in the end. Sooner or later, the Creator's going to say, well, that's enough, and he's going to bring an end to these things. And just like Messiah said that his coming would be like the days of Noah when all of these things were going on, he also likened the days of his coming to the days of Lot when some of these things came to an end. 
Let's read about that in Luke chapter 17. He says, Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So all of this is to say that his coming is going to be characterized by days where men are eating, drinking, mixing, mingling, doing all of these things, going and doing the very things that the Creator has said not to do. But when He comes, or as He is preparing to come, then the Creator is going to bring these things to a close. He's going to rain fire and brimstone, so to speak. Actually, what we, I believe anyway, is this is what we're seeing in our day and time. And the stage, in other words, is being set for the rise of the beast, this son of perdition. Because if people are so quick to mix the holy with the profane, the clean with the unclean, to embrace and internalize all those things that the Creator says are abominable, then eventually they're going to be given over to these abominations and this son of perdition and his mark. Now, according to the, uh, the book of Daniel, this son of perdition, the Antichrist, the beast, whatever word you would like to refer to him as, he is going to establish a kingdom that is partly strong and partly weak. But it is a kingdom that seeks to isolate God's people and then tries to destroy God's people. In fact, in Daniel chapter 2, it is, it's described for us as being two feet with ten toes. And, of course, those ten toes represent ten kings. And this kingdom is a mixed and mingled kingdom, iron with clay. But notice it's the last kingdom of man. And besides the ten toes, the ten kings, what we also see on the feet is a heel, which takes us back to another concept that we find in the very beginning. That's through Esau when he was born, his heel was poised to come down on the top of Jacob, Israel's head, potentially destroying Israel. Well, that's what the adversary has always had in mind, to isolate God's people and then to destroy God's people. And so Daniel points out for us that in order to do this, or in his attempt to do this, that he will seek to mingle with the seed of men. Actually, the ten kings will seek to mingle with the seed of men. And the word that's translated men there in Daniel chapter 2 is anusha, anusha, which is the Aramaic equivalent of the word or name enosh. And enosh is someone that we see in the very beginning. And it was during the days of enosh that men began to, in earnest, walk away from God, abandon his principles, and begin to mix and mingle. In other words, what Daniel says is that what's going on in the end of days, in this time when this kingdom that is the two feet, ten toes, iron mingled with clay, when they are seeking to mingle with the seed of Anusha, what goes on in the end is linked to what happened in the beginning. All of that is to say, The spiritual climate that is in the beginning that precipitates the flood of Noah and the destruction of all living things, save those things, those beings that were on the ark, 
that same kind of climate is what we're going to see just before the Messianic era. And quite frankly, that's what we're beginning to see already. But interestingly, maybe even ironically, we almost have to have this kind of an environment. It's almost a prerequisite to the Messianic age coming into being. If you will, look at it as the birth pangs that bring forth these things. But it's also important to emphasize in these days the Babylonian nature of this particular kingdom because the Babylonian nature defines the characteristics of the Antichrist. And it may, in fact, allude to the very region of the world from where these things are going to come from, where this individual may, in fact, come from. It doesn't have to be that way, but it may allude to that. We might not be able to determine with you know, complete clarity when Babylon arises or where it arises from or who the king of Babylon is, but we know this, it will happen because this last day kingdom has a Babylonian influence. Now, when we look at global circumstances, specifically in the Middle East, and we see, and I'm speaking in general terms here, the nature and characteristics of the people in the Middle East, the behavior of some, and by that I mean the violent behavior of some, and some of the events politically that have been unfolding, even the unrest and civil war, etc., then we may be seeing the rise of this Babylonian mindset in the sense that we have this kingdom wanting to come forth. The mindset, the way of thinking is already in all the nations. It affects all nations. It affects all cultures, including this one. But what I'm trying to say is some of the things that are going on in the world today suggest that it might be transitioning from a mindset into a reality, a, a physical kingdom. It might be that the time is ripe from the adversary's point of view to try to bring forth this literal physical kingdom this that is going to be eventually ruled by the one we call the anti-Messiah. Now, there's another important clue that is given to us in the book of Daniel that describes this kingdom. We've, We've already alluded to it, but four times he mentions that this kingdom is a mixed or a mingled kingdom. And in the text, when he describes this kingdom in Daniel chapter 2, The word he uses is me'arav, and that's spelled mem-ayin-resh-vet, me'arav. It's, again, translated mixed or mingled, describing this last kingdom. It stems from the Hebrew root word arav, and arav is spelled ayin-resh-vet. Arav is the Hebrew pronunciation, but you and I would pronounce this word Arab. In other words, the Hebrew term that means mixed or mingled and the Hebrew word that gives birth to the word that is descriptive of this last kingdom of man, the one that is going to try to isolate God's people and destroy God's people, it comes from a word that we would pronounce being as being Arab. Now, when I say that, <clears throat> do not think that I'm saying that all Arab peoples 
are evil or unclean, unholy. I'm not saying that at all. To the contrary, the Bible teaches that regardless of your ethnicity, of your culture, what country you came from, even what religion you were born into, when someone accepts the Messiah and is born again of that incorruptible seed, the Bible tells us that that person, regardless of the color of their skin or the language they speak or the country they were born in, that person becomes, in God's eyes, Israel, the good seed. However, we can't get around this, that biblically speaking, Arav is a derogatory term. It means, once again, mixed or mingled. And the Creator, throughout His Word, warns His people not to do this, not to mix, not to mingle. Don't be yoked to uh, the, the darkness. What fellowship do we have with darkness? We're not to be unequally yoked. So, regardless of the fact that it's politically incorrect to say some of these things, the word arav means mixed and mingled. It is a derogatory term. Now, I need to point this out. Anyone, regardless of their cultural background, the color of their skin, the language they speak, the country that they were born in, has the potential to be considered arav, mixed or mingled, of the other seed, if... The good seed, which is the word of God, personified in the Messiah, is not in them. In other words, you don't just have to be a one group to be considered arav or mixed or mingled. You can come from any group of people, any ethnicity, any culture. As a matter of fact, it could be that those that the world looks upon as being God's people might, in fact, be of the other seed. They might be mixed or mingled or arav. In fact, let me read to you from John chapter 8 to make my point. Yeshua says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. So in other words, Messiah makes it very clear here that even those that are supposed to be of God may not be of God, that they might be of that other seed. Those who have the outward appearance of holiness may in fact be of the serpent of the seed of the serpent. Because whose you are, whether you belong to the creator or whether you belong to the adversary, whether you're considered to be the son and daughter of God or whether you're the seed of the wicked one, it's not based on your ethnicity. It's not based on your culture. It's not even based on what religion you may have been born into. It's based on whether or not you have been born again. Again, that is to say that if you were born Arab, for instance, which does mean mixed or mingled, if you were born Arab but you have come to the Messiah Yeshua and he has come into your life, then you are born again as his people Israel. And on the flip side of that, you might have people who proclaim to be Christians but who in fact are of the seed of the serpent 
who are of that mixed and mingled seed, Arav. Now, all that being said, it's still clear that throughout history and in the Scripture, the adversary has used specific people and sometimes specific people groups to strike at Israel. And I believe that's very clear throughout the Bible, you know, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there were specific nations that historically came against Israel. And so if that's the way it was in the beginning, then we have good reason to believe that that might be the way it is in the end. And I believe that may provide us clues as to where the beast comes from, who and what the beast is, what is his nature, what is his character traits, all these things. We do know that he's going to arise from the nations, but... I'm trying to point out that we may have a little better clue as to what nations he might arise from. This we can say without any doubt, that it will be from a culture, from a way of thinking, um, maybe even a religion that is noted to be mixed and mingled. Now, before we go any further down that road, there's a couple of principles that we need to highlight here, and that is this. Number one, there's only one good seed. And that good seed, of course, is the Word of God, which is the Torah, the, the, the prophets. I would even include the Gospels in that. All the instructions of our God, that's the one and only good seed, the Word of God. But the Word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. And so that good seed is personified in the Messiah, Yeshua, and he, being that good seed, when that good seed is received by people like you and me, to as many as received him, he gave them the power to become the sons of God. We are the sons of the kingdom, according to the parable of the wheat and the tares. Messiah himself said that. So then, there is only one good seed. Then there's everything else. Then there's the tear. Then there's that other seed. And that other seed is the one seed that is opposed to the God of Israel and consequently opposed to the people of Israel. This is the seed of the serpent. It's the counterpart to the good seed, which is identified, uh, as we said, the word of God, the Messiah, and his people. And this other seed represents the word of the serpent, which is a mixed and mingled word. I believe the personification of this seed, of this word, is the Antimacide, the son of perdition, the beast. And that body is the sons of the wicked one, those who have embraced that seed, those who are characterized as being tares. They have rejected the good seed and by default have embraced the other seed. And they're mixed, they're mingled. And this might be what's being alluded to in Daniel chapter 2 when he says that they will seek to mingle with the seed of men. Now, that being understood, if there's only one good seed, there's only one word of God, then that means that any other holy book that tries to project itself or to represent itself as being the word of God can't be the word of God. If there's only one truth... Because the scripture says that your law is truth. If there's only one truth and that's the word of God, then anything else that 
presents itself as being the Word of God can't be the Word of God. And if it's not the Word of God, it's not truth, then it has to be a lie. And from the very beginning, every convincing lie has always contained a measure of truth. So then, any other holy book outside of Scripture, if it's not the truth, if it's not the Word of God, then it's not the good seed, and therefore we must consider it to be what it's called in Hebrew, zunim, or what we read about in Matthew 13, it's the tares. And the tares are sown in the midst of the wheat to isolate, to uh, eventually destroy, because the adversary comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And so he isolates, and then he tries to smother. He tries to stamp out. And who is behind this ultimately? It is the adversary because this seed, this lie, is fathered by the father of lies, the the adversary, the devil. And those who embrace the seed, those who are characterized as being the tares, they are eventually going to mature. Just like the seed that's planted that becomes wheat and matures, produces its fruit, The other seed, the tear, is also going to mature and produce its respective fruit. And when it does, here is what it is going to do or attempt to do. It's going to attempt to destroy the righteous seed. Going back to the picture that we see in the image of Daniel 2, to try to stamp out the good seed. At the close of this segment, it's really important for us to understand in these last days that these two opposing seeds, they cannot coexist. And I want you to consider that when you look around you and what the culture and what the world wants you and I to do. It wants us to coexist, and yet scripturally we understand we can't coexist with it, with them, not the way they interpret it and translate it and define it, because according to the scripture there has always been this hostility that has existed between the two. You see, in other words, those who cry for tolerance and coexistence don't want to coexist with those who believe in the Word of God, who embrace the Word of God, and who are trying to live their lives according to the Word of God. They will coexist with anything and everything except that. They can't tolerate that. And so they will make the accusations that those who believe in the Scriptures are actually the intolerant people. But like Esau accusing Jacob of meaning supplanter and of being supplanter, they end up accusing us of what they are guilty of. Because the tares are not sown in the midst of the wheat so that the wheat and tares can be friends. It's not done so that they can coexist with one another and be friends. It's done so that... The tears can begin the process of stealing, killing, and destroying. Just like weeds will steal the nutrients from the ground away from corn or wheat. That's what the tears will do. But then the the tears will begin to kill the plant, the wheat, and destroy the fruit. That's what this other seed does. And that's why the Messiah warned us that the days of his coming would be like the days of Noah, when men, if you'll allow me to paraphrase, were mixing and mingling, coexisting. 
And because they were seduced into this coexistence, they didn't realize what was about to happen. You see, the adversary seed is always, from the very beginning, trying to destroy God's people, the good seed. We see this with Pharaoh in Egypt, Esau, he tried to destroy Jacob. Herod the Great tried to destroy the Messiah. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, came against Jerusalem. He tried to destroy them. Throughout history, the adversary and those whom he's worked have tried to destroy God's people. And this hostility we see between the two goes all the way back to the very beginning. In fact, the very beginning, we see that um, this hostility began to take shape right after God told the serpent that he would put enmity between him and between the woman and between their respective seeds. And so when he told him that in Genesis chapter 3, I'm not of the opinion that the serpent slithered off in defeat, but I believe from that very point he began to plot and to scheme as to how he could reverse this decision somehow. How could he instead of being crushed by the heel of the righteous seed, how could he take his heel and crush the head of the righteous seed? So when we see in Genesis chapter 4 that Eve was pregnant and she conceived and bore Cain first, it's interesting that Cain is going to be that one who is called of the wicked one. In other words, what we're going to see is how this enmity between the two, the good seed and the other seed, began to take shape in the very beginning. You want to understand what's going on at the end? You have to understand what happened in the beginning. If these two seeds were hostile toward one another in the beginning, well, they're going to be hostile toward one another in the end. They cannot coexist with one another. That's the point. Cain is going to end up killing his brother because apparently, for whatever reason, Abel was lured into a trap. He was lured into a snare. Cain didn't say, Abel, come out into the field so I can kill you. No, he was lured into it. So when we come back, we're going to look a little bit more at this story of Cain and the mark of Cain and how it applies to you and me in this day. Like what you're hearing? Become a Bill Cloud Premium Partner to watch or listen to hundreds of hours of teachings and resources on demand. Go to BillCloud.com slash subscribe to start watching today.